0: Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This week on Capital Conversations, I am joined by the rest of our policy team, Travis Wusso, Stephen Harris, and Chelsea patterson Soblick And we're going to have a roundtable conversation on systemic racism, police brutality, protests, and grief the grief that has gripped the nation over these last couple of weeks after the murders of arbery taylor floyd and and many other african american neighbors of ours and the country has responded and there are a lot of issues wrapped up in this conversation and we thought it might be helpful uh, to you as you, uh, if you're a pastor or you're in ministry or you and your family and friends, wherever you live, are thinking about and talking about these issues. Maybe you're participating in the protests. Maybe you're just reading a lot right now. Maybe you don't even know where to begin. Well, we hope that this conversation uh, can be a launching point uh, for many more conversations on these difficult yet critical issues to talk about. So that's what we're going to do here with this episode of Capital Conversations. Uh, Chelsea, are you with us?
1: I am with you. Um, greetings, everyone.
0: Steven, do we have you? hope so. Uh... Yes, we do. Awesome.
2: And, and Travis, I know you're still in Texas. We're here for another couple of weeks, and then we head back to D.C., hopefully just as soon as phase two opens or uh, phase two starts in D.C., Right, right. yeah, DC is is reopening.
0: everybody is uh, is slowly trying to figure out what our what our new normal is going to be. If you enjoy these conversations here on this podcast, consider signing up for our policy newsletter. You can sign up for it at ERLC.com slash policy to keep up with the work of Travis, Stephen, Chelsea, Dr. Moore, and the rest of our ERLC team in Washington, D.C. We send this policy newsletter out each week, focusing on an issue that we are advocating for in the public square. Uh, You can check it out and continue the conversations beyond this podcast at ERLC.com slash policy, where you can sign up for that newsletter. All right, Stephen, I want to start with you. Here on this roundtable, we're going to try to cover a lot of different things that have gripped the nation over the last couple of weeks, but I just want to ask that you start by giving us some perspective. How did you see the news of, of the murders of Arbery, Taylor, and Floyd in, in such quick succession? And then what has it felt like to watch protests and, and even at times rioting around the country uh, in response to the grief of those murders?
3: Yeah, for I think for me, you know, all of this kind of came right on the heels of what was beginning to be a national conversation about how COVID-19 was disproportionately impacting communities of color. I don't know if you remember that, but like it was, that that was one of the conversations right before all this hit. And, you know, we're here in Prince George's County and definitely impacting a lot of, a lot of uh, Black people here around us. Um, And so, our minds, I was already thinking kind of about that and even having some conversations with some people about that, already being confronted by or with individuals who didn't care about that. <laughs> um, there, there was a couple of of, of, of very sobering pieces, pieces that were written talking about how at the same time that conversation was happening, people were very adamant about we need to open back up. It's not bothering me or my community or my family. And so we just need to we need to do what we got to do. And so, and so that was the kind of context in which all of these things kind of became national news. You know, Ahmaud Arbery, you know, his death was back early in in the year, but the the news and then the video came out. And then quickly after, like you said, we had news about Breonna Taylor and then the reality of George Floyd. Um, and quite honestly, man, I, I was saddened, I was upset, but I wasn't surprised. And I remember telling a friend, um that my lack of surprise was troubling, but, you know, I was, I was more, even more saddened than that, um, it it, it was something that I had kind of settled into becoming used to. So there was a kind of, that's terrible. I can't believe that. But there was also a kind of, here we go again. And, and, and that was both for both my bride and I, you know, um, it's cause, because when I asked her you know you know had you seen it or had you heard about it and that's like confused have you seen it have you heard about it and she and she looked at me and she was just like what happened now that that's literally what, what she said she said what happened now and so that's that's kind of how it hit our hit our household it hit our hearts it was just kind of like here we go again you know and and I quickly then, Started participating in conversations with, with folks, saw some social media things, and then saw the saw the divide in how people were perceiving the moment, and that divide largely along racial lines. Um, and, and so I backed off of that rather quickly because that was that is what began to kind of fuel my my frustration and anger, right? But we, well, I'm sure we'll talk about, a little bit about that. But that's how it immediately hit us, and and so to see the protests kind of spur from that, it felt like a a new moment. I was, I, I, and I still am, I was trying to process when they first started and and still trying to think about now, what does, what has been the effect in the aggregate of people social distancing at home, being on lockdown, not having to be out in whatever emotional state that they may be in. And then to have these kinds of realities kind of confront them. I just, I just, I feel like there's a, there's a, there, there, um, that people had time to they didn't have time to look away I guess they they couldn't busy themselves with other things
0: i saw a friend post a, a tweet on her on her instagram stories that said it very well just like wow it, it it took it took the nation having literally no other distractions to entertain ourselves away we we sat in this Safer at home, quarantine situation for ten plus weeks. There's no sports. TV shows are are off the air uh, for the nation to fully recognize what too many of our black neighbors have lived their entire experience. And there's just that kind of and that that's an interesting. I, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about until I saw that post. How true that really was. That makes this moment and the response
3: different Mm. and and what it also made and this is kind of a footnote it also is an irony of it individuals who were adamant about looking away who like who were still like active on social media like it made it very obvious those people who were very actively and like woefully not trying to engage with the reality that the nation is kind of grappling with right so you saw those see this kind of off tweets or off posts like i don't know man like i saw one uh when this first started and everybody was kind of grappling with it and you know somebody was like you know hey i just got this new gadget for my computer i can't wait to And it's like what are you talking about dude (laughs) um and and so it just it's 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 because everybody was immediately confronted with it all at once it just it, it, it everything is highlighted every reaction is highlighted and every 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 kind of display of inattention willful inattention and um It's just highlighted for me, at least. And so it's a complex moment, man. But that's that's immediately how it hit my household.
0: Stephen, you talked about not being surprised. Is it that you're not surprised of of what exactly?
3: Yeah. So not surprised that a person in authority, namely law enforcement, would in one scene, in one setting, um, so I'm thinking about the George Floyd case right now, but it's, and so the Amar Arbery case is, is a little different, but again, that kind of lack of surprise applied there as well. And I could talk about that, but thinking about like the Breonna Taylor and the George Floyd case, um, just not surprised, kind of tried, judged, and summarily kind of ended right there in one space. Um, I mean, th- that's essentially what you have, right? You, you, you have a black life that is, that is assessed Deemed guilty, deemed, you know, really condemned in that moment, and and not and 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 then deemed uh, not worthy of 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 life. Like all that happened within one scene, in a, in a very obvious obvious unjust fashion. Um, just not just not surprised by that. And, that, and that for that lack of surprise for me is a, is attended by, um, just a long understanding. This is where history is important. Of this kind of the devaluing of, of black life um, that America for me it's it's part and parcel of the American historical narrative and even the American religious historical narrative and so to see the vestiges of that still present today that that does not surprise me
0: yeah Stephen it's something I. So appreciate about the role that you play on our team and in our work is no matter what the issue is, you're always bringing that historical perspective and trying to remind us, you know whether it's theological issues uh, that we're faced with in our work at the RLC or policy political issues, uh, you're a historian man, and that is so helpful and and I and I want to talk uh, more about that history, but but maybe later on as we as we move throughout the podcast, w- one more question that I have for you here on perspective. Give us your perspective on these protests that are ongoing. They are I, I think many people maybe thought, okay, the Minneapolis protests are because these officers have not been charged. they have not been arrested. those officers have since been charged, they were arrested, they've been charged. but the protests continue and they are growing. What does the scale and the breadth and the duration of these protests feel like? I mean, e- we even have protests all around the world, massive protests for George Floyd and and for uh, shining a light on these injustices and to say that, that Black Lives Matter. Uh, they're happening all throughout the country and all around the world. What does that feel like?
3: Yeah, that, that's what I was going to point to. That's where it feels if there's a newness to it um, for me because of the ways in which this this entire dialogue has become kind of global, and it it just feels like for again a number of reasons, and I and I don't think that the the kind of pan the 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 health pandemic reality can be divorced from it, even though I don't know how to articulate why it is or what it is. But for a number of reasons, um, it seems like individuals, both black and white, of all colors, all creeds are determined not to let this conversation just be a quick oh that was tragic i can't believe that happened okay and i think it goes to what you said jeff like okay like what nba team is playing tonight i got to do this work tomorrow we got to keep it moving like it seems like people are very adamant about no we're going to stare this in the face um as a as a as a community as a as a state as a nation as a as as a global People, we're going to stare this in the face and not and not look up. And I think the protests are are, are kind of are becoming the kind of midwife of that enduring conversation.
0: Hmm. So, Travis, these are these are really important issues for our work at the ERLC, and they have been for for many years. Uh, I'll link in the show notes to our MLK 50 conference that we hosted in Memphis in 2018 with the Gospel Coalition. All the conference. Keynotes and panel discussions there. This is important work for the ERLC. But I've noticed in just the years I've been here, and certainly if you ask Dr. Moore, out of all the issues we work on, what are the ones that bring out the harshest controversy and criticism? Uh, And that's these issues of race. I think some of those criticisms that we hear are well-meaning, well-intentioned, but a lot of them are just plain evil. Uh, I think about some of the emails we get or... You know, there's always this moment when our interns, you know, back when we had internships in offices, back when we worked in offices before the pandemic, you know, there was always that moment when an intern would be checking the voicemail from the previous uh, evening, first thing in the morning, and there's a profanity-laced message from a white supremacist. That happens, and it happens when we talk about race, may happen after this podcast. I don't know. I'm curious for your perspective here as somebody who's been sitting with these issues, For a while, even before you were on staff at the ERLC, but in local church ministry, why are white evangelicals in particular often reluctant to speak about race in America? Even those who would be well-meaning when they speak, why is it such a? I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like, what is that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think there there's a lot of ways to answer that question. Um, and you know, I. I don't consider myself to be an expert on these issues, but I've lived in a couple cross-cultural settings. I've been thinking about these things for a while, this, you know, community development and, you know, and and working within Austin's African-American and Latino communities was a big part of my life for a lot of years. And even still, I feel like I'm constantly learning. And constantly developing a deeper sense of empathy. And so I think that's part of it is that, you know, we're, you know, folks who want to say something are afraid that they're going to sound stupid or sound ignorant um, or be, you know, I think in a positive way, be unintentionally offensive. And, you know, there's a pretty good chance you will. I mean, you know, some of the deepest lessons I've learned. In terms of you know these issues of racial reconciliation have been uh, have been through you know mistakes that I've made and um, and that kind of thing you know and I've been fortunate to have a number of dear friends of color who have been really gracious to me along the years. They didn't have to be, but they were and the, and within our communities that's been my that's been my experience is that there's a lot of grace when I didn't deserve it. On the other hand, I mean, I think folks are afraid to say something because they are afraid of the other side and, you know, folks who are going to attack you for, you know, distracting from the gospel or, you know, uh, police the language that you, that you use, and if you use the wrong word, then accuse you of being a cultural Marxist or a critical race theorist or, or something like that. And so I think there, you know, there is, there is something About this issue that I think for white folks to understand is that if you say something, you're gonna make somebody mad or hurt. One of those two things is is there's virtually a hundred percent chance that that's gonna happen. Um, They may not tell you, but it's going to happen. If you post something on Twitter, or you post something on Facebook, or post something on Instagram, not everybody's gonna be happy about it. And I think that's you know I think for most people that's a scary kind of thing. You know, we're, most of us are not wading into controversy um, all the time, but, you know, this is uh, this is an issue that divides us. And as Stephen was saying, you know, earlier, it's, you know, it's connected to our, our history on these things. You know, last thing I'll say is, you know, I think a lot of us, particularly within sort of the Reformed evangelical world, you know, we, I think we have to recognize that we're at some disadvantages in terms of how to think about these issues, even. You know, we we see our relationship with God is very individual. We see our sin as individual. And so repentance, therefore, is individual. It's between me and God. It has to do with me and what I did to another person, you know, or whatever. And so we don't, we don't, in some ways, we we don't have the tools to see ourselves as part of a larger. Community and and the and the reality is, I mean, you you know, if you spend any time in the Old Testament, um, you know, God's wrath is and His judgment and condemnation is very rarely directed at an individual. Most of the time, it's directed at the community, and so you know, there's something about how we see ourselves as you know, individual—and there's a truth to that. I'm not saying that that's not true. I mean, we, you know, our individual relationship with God matters. But once that that is formed through God's saving power, we are then adopted into a new family. We are made citizens of a new kingdom. We are, you know, we become the stones of a new temple. And, you know, so because we don't lean into those other communal collective metaphors for who we are as Christians, I think it— It prevents us from being able to understand these issues in a, we see racism as my own animus rather than the generation upon generation upon, you know, generation that, that has brought us to where we are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Chelsea, what about you? When you think about these issues and been around them, why do you think people are so often, and I know I'm speaking probably for us, us here too, this isn't the most comfortable podcast we've ever recorded, What do you think's going on there?
1: I mean, I'll just pull back the curtain on some conversations I've had over the past month um, with very, very well-meaning people who have not entered into this conversation. Um, And kind of echoing what Travis was saying, they entered into it and just got slammed for either unintentionally misspeaking or um, speaking boldly and clearly and... um, people just didn't like that. So I think there's um especially on social media where anyone can follow you, anyone and everyone has an opinion and will share that freely. Um I think there is a fear of a, a big fear of of misstepping especially for people who are not engaged in these conversations often that does not mean that we should not be engaging and seeking to learn and listen and seeking to have these conversations. But I do, I mean, I personally have had conversations over the past few weeks of just, I mean, people like a deer in headlights being paralyzed by fear of of being mis misunderstood. So I, I I've personally seen that. And again, especially for people who have not engage in this issue and you know' I'm, I don't say any of that to give a free pass because um, this is part of our history and black people have been trying to tell us these things for so long and Stephen, I' really appreciated what you said about um, about this moment um, being different and people paying attention. I have felt that so much and I've tried to articulate it and you did it much better than I did. Um, but people are paying attention in a way I haven't seen them do before, and that is encouraging. And I I know there's going to be um, people that are fearful and and make missteps along the way.
2: Can Can I say something real quick? So, yeah, sure. So I I think the I mean we've sort of been like descriptive of of why, and and I I think I would just say if you aren't sure what to say, and you know you are in a homogenous community you know, there's not anything that you can do to change that right now, overnight. You know, there's not anything that you can do, you know, to get up to speed on these issues in a, in like this week, you know what I'm saying? And so I think if you're, if you are not sure of what to say, the first thing to do is to just start listening and start paying attention, you know, follow, you know, if you're looking at your Instagram you know, the people you follow on Instagram and it's all white folks or, you know, try to diversify what you're listening to. And when you come across things that you don't agree with, process them, you know, notice the things you disagree with and think about it and process it with, you know, with, with some other, you know, with some friends and, and, and start thinking about and engaging the things that people of color are talking about right now. So the, the
0: next issue we need to talk about here is uh, the issue of police brutality, uh, in America. And I'll just start this conversation uh, by saying that you know I, I grew up in a small town south of south of Houston, on the Gulf Coast. and uh, you know I, I think i'm I'm realizing now much of what is being described as community policing policies was my normal experience with police growing up. I'm not saying that's the experience for everybody in my in my town, but it was my experience. I mean, I, I knew I had friends whose parents were, uh, you know, worked for the police department, were were officers or, or had another job in there. I mean, even for a, a, a school project at uh, one time, I was I was uh, uh, working with the police department on something. And so, you know, police were I thought of them as friends of the community, members of our churches. And, and they were. But, you, you know, I, I think it wasn't until I was in high school and I was and I was driving, uh, you know, myself around town and, you know, every once in a while would get pulled over for speeding uh, or something like that. I, I don't know if it's right to to admit to as a you know, a speeding crime on a podcast. But, you know, it, it happens. Certainly happened to me as a 16 year old. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, I, I had experience with police officers like that and then compared it to my friends uh, who weren't white. Uh, and what their experience was like that I began to realize that, that there are multiple different Americas, especially when it comes to policing. And I'll I'll just give, you know, one story. I was, I was, uh, driving around, uh, it was during the school day. I was, I had an off campus class and I was going between them and my truck, y'all, it was old. The passenger door didn't open because I hit a light pole once in a parking lot. There were there was no AC; it was very hot. I would sweat any time I drove. And this officer pulls me over. I'm I'm going too fast, like a high schooler. And uh, the officer comes up to the passenger side, so he wasn't standing in the road and the driver's side. And he's like, "Roll down your window." And I'm like, "I can't." He's like, "What do you mean you can't?" I was like, "The door's busted. The window doesn't work." And I'm sweating and. Eventually I was able to open the door. We were able to have a conversation. And after all of that, he noticed my inspection was, was late. I had my driver's license, but he was confused why I wasn't in school when I should have been in school. All this to say, he showed me grace. And somehow at the end of that conversation, I walked away with a warning. Another buddy of mine around the same time got pulled over during the school, during the school year, didn't have nearly as many complications or nearly as many violations. And he was pulled out of the car questioned uh, they wanted to search his car for drugs uh, he he did not have any he was driving his his dad's car didn't know where the insurance was they assumed it was stolen eventually uh, eventually a uh, another officer arrived at the scene and was able to slow it all down and I'm and I'm very thankful nothing nothing worse happened but it wasn't until that experience that I really kind of saw uh, the difference experiences that people have. With policing in America, and I know that that my experience is not the experience, certainly of many Black men and women uh, in America. And for those who have been paying attention these last couple of weeks, we have just been inundated. And I'm just saying, we, the country, the world—if uh, you're spending any time on social media— inundated with images and videos of police brutality. So, Stephen, I I, I want to come to you next, and and I'm struggling to even think of of a question here. So I, I guess I'll just say for like what what do you wish those of us who have only ever had good experiences with police officers, what do you wish we understood?
3: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I appreciate you sharing that, man. I, I think I think the most helpful way to get at this, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but really it's just because there's there's so much to talk about. I think people really need to to give an honest analysis of of that incident that went down with Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper.
0: Yes, yeah, so that's the central part.
3: Um, the central park Yeah, Amy incident, Cooper right? was the white woman in Central Park. Uh, Christian Cooper of no relation in the park bird watching engaged Amy Cooper about her dog not being on a leash. Things escalated very quickly, but the video that comes out is of uh, Amy Cooper. Literally calling police and telling them that she is being threatened and attacked by a black man in Central Park. And when you watch that video and you see the intonation in her voice change, how she is literally trying to mimic terror and fear. I mean, it's, it's just, it, 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 is, it is right there in front of you. And somebody made made this comment, I forget who it was, uh, when they were again trying to tie all these events, events together. They said you have to realize that Amy Cooper wanted what happened to George Floyd to happen to Christian Cooper. Like that, 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 that is the that was the, the the kind of telos of that performance. And if you notice in the exchange between Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper, she's literally telling him that, right? Like, I am going to call the police. Uh, and I, I'm going to tell them that you're doing this. You're not doing that, right? That's obvious. But I'm going to tell them you're doing this. It, it's literally a threat, because she knows that something can be weaponized in this moment that would result in in the literally the the demise, the uh, result in the the destruction of his person, right? That 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 is that is what she is she is aiming for. And then, so the question becomes, what does she have insight into? You know, what What? what, what knowledge is, is she making capital off of in that exchange? And there's a work by a professor named Khalil Muhammad. He teaches at Harvard Kennedy School. Came out in, in February, and know, came out in 20, 2010, early 2010, I believe. It's called The Condemnation of Blackness. And what Khalil historicizes, what Khalil Muhammad historicizes is what he's calling this condemnation of blackness. What happened? How did it become the, the reality that America, um, that that its law enforcement, that its citizens, white citizens, began to look upon black people, upon blackness as particularly distinctly criminal. It is a historicization of the criminality, the the kind of the 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 history of, of the, the notion of the criminality of black people. Um and what he what and that's the only thing I'll say about it is uh, is I mean it's a it's a really important work, but this is what I'll say about it. What he talks about it is that while you have African slaves transported from West Africa to the colonies in the early 17th century. We know, well, hopefully we know that history by now. But he says when you have other immigrant, immigrant groups who, are, who also begin to make their way to the new world, you know, 18th, 19th century, et cetera, you see certain things in those immigrant populations, whether it's poverty, whether it's crime, et cetera. And what he says is, and he kind of charts this, he's, I mean, the, the, the statistics and the data in this, in this thing are impeccable. But what happens is when people look at those occurrences in those other immigrant groups, they they, they do this. They say, oh, they're doing that because the, their social conditions aren't optimal, right? The crime is there because they don't have access to jobs. Or the poverty is there because they want to work, but they they, they they don't have access to opportunity. They begin to literally make these other alternative excuses by looking at the social the, which these immigrants sit, he says. What happens to black people is when black pe- when you see in black communities those same kind of maladies that you saw in other immigrant po- populations as they, as they were trying to get their start. Now, now remember, for for African peoples on American soil, the start was tr- chattel slavery, right? That's a whole other conversation. But, but but when when people begin to look in in black communities and and see these same kind of maladies, right? Post emancipation. You didn't have this kind of, oh, it's because they don't have jobs, they don't have opportunity. That it, it, it was instead a, there's something endemic to Blackness itself that produces these kinds of outcomes. In other words, there was a pathologization of Blackness. It, it wasn't look at their social context, it's look at them, look at their culture, look at who they are as a people. Or perhaps they're less than human. Right. It was it was a pathologization of blackness that turned into a kind of condemnation of blackness. They're, they're inherently criminal. Right. And you see this notion get taken up in politics there. There's a long history of that as well. Uh, Hillary Clinton even had to deal with that in, in her presidential run. Right. You see these notions of, of black criminality then kind of become diffuse throughout culture. Amy Cooper recognizes that when she's calling the police and she says, look, here is what I'm going to get done to you if you don't leave me alone. Um, and so so you just see there in that in that in that that very short clip, um, just an average white female citizen who is tapping into that, that history, really. Right. Um, she probably didn't even know all the history. But what she knows in that moment is I, I know that there's a particular gaze upon blackness that I can weaponize.
0: We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Every day we hear countless messages telling us how to think about the world around us. As the culture pulls us in different directions, it's easy to get overwhelmed and disengage completely or even begin to be more influenced by the world than the word of God. But how should we respond to everyday events and issues in a God-honoring way? A new book from The Good Book Company titled Beautifully Distinct, Conversations with Friends on Faith, Life, and Culture, edited by Trillian Newbell, brings together 15 women, including UrLC and Capital Conversation's own Chelsea patterson Soblick, to discuss films, books, and media. The book also outlines biblical principles for approaching difficult topics like body image and racism and encourages its readers to shape our lives around Christ. Beautifully Distinct is now available at your favorite bookstore or thegoodbook.com. You can find out more in the link in our show notes. That's Beautifully Distinct at thegoodbook.com. Stephen, that is thank you for that. That is so good and it's it's helpful to to again, you're offering that historical perspective and helping us see that we're a part of a narrative, even if we don't realize it. And something I shared on uh, on my Instagram, and, I, and I'll try to find a similar timeline graphic uh, to show folks, um, but it it basically outlines the timeline from American slavery, segregation, and where we are today. And honestly, th- this was one of the things I saw that just really, it was so helpful to consider and to realize how much time we're actually talking about. So, you know, so, so this timeline had American slavery starting in 1526, going all the way to 1865. Um, that's 339 years of, of uh, slavery in the United States of America. Uh, then we had 89 years of segregation from 1865 uh, to when the civil rights movement began in uh, 1954, and, and it was 100 years from 1865 to the civil rights legislation in the mid-1960s. And then you look at where we are today, and there's just something so helpful about seeing that visual of a timeline of, yes, America has come a long way in racial justice issues. But when you see that timeline, you're just humbled at realizing how far we still have to go. So when we think about justice reform, criminal justice, the system, police are only, are only one part of it. And Travis, I know you've thought a lot about criminal justice reform and the different pieces that will be necessary uh, to move us to a better tomorrow. And uh, I know in particular, as a lawyer, you've You've thought about prosecutors and the role that that they play in our in our system. Talk to us a little bit about that.
2: What has sparked this conversation and this moment is these these three cases of uh, beginning with Ahmad Arbery, uh, as well as George Floyd, and and a, a case has been talked about quite a lot less, the case of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. And you know what's what's interesting about all of these cases. Is that it took a lot of pressure uh, for the police officers at the center of these stories to be charged in the first place by the prosecutors? Because the prosecutorial function uh, and the policing function is, you know, is different. It's separate. You know, so in the case of George Floyd, the uh, four police officers that uh, were involved in his murder were immediately fired, but. The police chief in Minneapolis doesn't have any control over whether uh, whether those four men will be charged uh, or, or were charged in any meaningful way. And, you know, so I think it's, you know, it's just it's worth reflecting on that reality. You know, in the situation in Louisville, the case of Breonna Taylor, it's a horrific story of a uh, African-American woman who was shot while she was sleeping in her bed. Uh, cops had a no-knock warrant uh, and uh, came into the house. Uh, her partner opened fire on the police because he thought his house was being broken into. The cops uh, returned and, and killed Brianna Taylor while she was asleep in her own home. Those those police officers are still walking around right now. None of them have been charged, even though the warrant uh, that they were uh, apparently. Uh, serving uh the the person that they were looking for had been found earlier in the day. I mean is it's just it's an unbelievable case. And one more detail, they were in plain clothes, uh officers right. coming in. Right. Exactly. It was at night, plain clothes, thought somebody's breaking in. Absolutely. I mean it is a it is a horrific case. Um and yet we are, you know, we're now several weeks from that incident happening, uh, and none of the none of the police officers involved in that uh, in that situation have been charged. And so, you know, it 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 speaks to the complexity of the problem that you can't just fix one element. There are lots of things that all have to be fixed all at the same time in order for justice to be served. Chelsea, before uh, we recorded this conversation, I
0: polled our interns because we still have summer interns. They're scattered all throughout the country doing a remote virtual program with us as we're all working from home. And so I just pulled them on Slack. I, you know, I, I asked, "Hey, we're going to be we're going to be talking about a variety of issues. What are some things that you know that you're thinking about? What questions do you have?" And and one common refrain that they all felt as college students right now is the struggle with the appropriate and and gospel centered way to respond to these issues in the public square. So you know, questions like, should we take to social media? Should we uh, attend attend rallies? Should we? A- should we march in protests? I, I know you've been thinking about, about this a lot these last couple of weeks, uh, being there in D.C., living living on Capitol Hill. What do you think about this question? How, how would you respond to a college student who is, who is thinking about what they should do?
1: Absolutely. So I will just say a couple of things. Um, first of all, um, our desire to understand and engage um, is good and right. But this should be a marathon, not a sprint. Um, I think there have been past moments where people have taken to social media or taken to the streets to peaceably protest, and it has probably felt like it was just a flash in the pan, and then we went back to life as normal. Um, so I would encourage anyone grappling with how to respond to, to think of it, um, to borrow a phrase from uh, a Eugene Peterson book title, a long obedience and understanding in the same direction. With that, I think there's two things to consider. Number one, an immediate um, kind of shorter term response. And number two, a longer term posture and response. I think an immediate thing we can all do right now that we should continue to do um, long term for the rest of our lives is to listen and learn from uh, people with other experiences than ours. Um, You can't seek to solve problems um, at a distance. You can't be in an ivory tower. To solve these issues, proximity matters. And so listening and learning to other people really matters. And we should um, lament what our Black brothers and sisters have been um, telling us and what they've experienced. Um, As far as uh, actions, I actually participated uh, this past weekend in, um, so Pastor Thabiti, Guile, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, um, who's the pastor of Anacostia River Church in D.C., and then Pastor David Platt, uh, the pastor of McLean Bible Church in Virginia, led this uh march. It was called Faith and Works March. Um and churches all over DC um gathered and walked. I think we walked about four, four and a half miles yesterday to sing and pray and lament and show our neighbors in DC and the world that we care about these issues. Um it was very striking to walk through Anacostia and to have, you know, people honk their horns or come out on their front porch and clap. I mean I teared up multiple times throughout the the event because um, seeing our city respond the way it did, and it was a very peaceful protest. Um, We gathered at the Capitol and spent um, over an hour praying. Um, Multiple pastors from multiple churches um, prayed, um, and uh, we all sought the Lord together. So I would encourage people, you know, to take on a posture of humility and grace as they're seeking to learn how to engage and to um to understand that it's a life lifelong um process this should not be you know post a couple things on social media to make yourself feel good that you did something um and to virtue signal um you know i would encourage people to regularly set aside time whether that's you know read a book every month by um a person of color, or on racial reconciliation, you know, set aside an hour a week to listen to a podcast, or um, seek to get closer to these issues so that you can learn over the long, long haul. So, long answer to a short question.
0: No, 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 it's, it's good, Chelsea. And as I as I was looking back at at photos uh, from that march that y'all participated in, Pastor T, uh, his sign said, "Also made in his image," and. It was a march that ended up getting some uh, additional news coverage as well, uh, because turns out y'all were marching alongside uh, Senator Mitt Romney, who I think it ought to be said is uh, he was marching and he was marching to say we we need voices standing up against racism. We need voices saying that black lives matter. And, And I'll even say it's been an encouragement to me to watch right in the in the heat of the moment when there when there were. Uh, looting and vandalism and some riots in addition to the protests, you know, I say earlier on, but that was just a week ago. But in 2020, that, you know, already feels like so long ago. But when that was happening, there was there was even in conservative media, there was a distinction constantly being made between the very legitimate protest against the horrific murder of George Floyd and others uh, and the very legitimate rallying cry of saying, yes, Black Lives Matter from the violence and, and looting, it wasn't a partisan issue at first. and um, like so many other things in our tribalized culture right now in America, there's plenty of division uh, coming uh, already in how we're thinking about these issues, how we're how we're talking about them, uh, even you know questions of is systemic racism, is it even real? I mean, I'm starting to see that now. And, you know, I I would just give a word in addition to the encouragement, Chelsea, that, that you said, when people are thinking about how do I discern between helpful and unhelpful voices on these issues, I would say, look for people who are doing deep thinking, not just performative demonstrations. And what I mean by performative demonstrations, you know, whether, whether that demonstration is, uh, is a meme on on social media or just you know holding up a Bible but not actually cracking it open yourself to see what it says about this issue, like we saw our, our president do. That kind of performative demonstration is it's not helpful. Keeping up with the daily TikTok on cable news or social media, I am guilty of this. And earlier in our staff meeting, uh, Dr. Moore was just encouraging us. To get up above that and don't be tossed to and fro uh, by the next Twitter controversy, uh, which there will be a lot in a moment of of such unrest like this, uh, but to rather search out helpful voices that are doing deep thinking that are pointing us to books. I'm so thankful that Chelsea, you encouraged us to dig in and 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 read books not just read posts and that's something my wife and I are are trying to do here and so i I would just I would encourage folks to find deep thinkers on these issues uh and and not and not be tossed to and fro by whatever the next controversy is and and speaking of deep thinkers stephen I I want to come back to you to uh to help us conclude and and that is I I know that th- this is one of those moments where we all have more to learn than answers. And one thing that I think will be really helpful for a lot of listeners of this podcast, Christian in churches, many of them are, are probably uh, majority white churches, if I had to guess. What are ways that we, those of us who are in Christ, can learn and become more like Christ uh, by learning from and, and being challenged by the both the long suffering, but also the steadfast faith the African American community, and and more specifically, the African American church.
3: Yeah, that's a uh, that's a good question. Um, I heard someone say once that it has, particularly in the American context, it has in many ways been the Black church, which is not a monolith, right? There is a diversity of belief and conviction, right? Um, and footnote: one of the great things we're seeing is a kind of unity emerge. Even across theological distinctive lines, right? Um, not to say that that the gospel is, is is being moved to the background, but it is to say that this is no longer, um, in many ways, in many ways it is. But in, in many instances, the, the, those kind of bright spots that we're seeing of people come together, it's, it's not you're liberal or you're conservative. Therefore, you know you can't participate, be vocal express, et cetera, you, you, I think one of the things in this moment is that we're seeing is that those kind of demarcations are being proven to be not only not helpful, but impotent in kind of addressing these issues. But back to your question, I heard it said once that the Black church um, has had perhaps the best biblical anthropology in the American context. And what what was meant by that was that it's been the Black church... That has always, from its inception um, uh, here in in the in the American context, pushed American Christendom, and then the, and even the nation writ large to to come to terms with its its falling short of its own ideals, its own stated ideals, and for 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 the Christ for the distinctively Christian imagination, you know that ideal would be the Imago Day. That we are all created in the image of God, that we all share a kind of equal dignity before right all of those kind of principles. It's actually been the the Black Church that has pushed American Christendom to come to terms with where it does not live up to that, and to then to then reckon with the negative impact that that has on its own uh, theological mission in the world, and that and that has been the case as well, kind of beyond the church, kind of in American civic and public life. Uh, social life, the country to live up to its own stated ideals, whether they be uh, what we see in the Declaration of Independence or in other iterations of America's kind of imagined status, right? And so I think one of the things that that we get a sense of and what I think is is noteworthy and what I think we all can learn from is the fact that the African-American church has been this place that has, while existing at the margins... While not being the ones who are the arbiters of power in, in public life, while continuing to deal with vestiges of, of white supremacy and racism that we've already discussed on this podcast, um, have yet, the African-American church, the black church has yet maintained a, a kind of vision of what King would call the beloved community. I think he's actually describing what ought have been what ought to have been the reality. Of, of the church, what we see within the church, within the community of the saints. You see this constant push toward that. And what I guess what I'm trying to say is you haven't seen, and there's a lot of work uh, that's done on, on what I'm about to say in terms of uh, alternative histories, you haven't seen a kind of, okay, well, the Black community needs to then return an eye for an eye. You haven't seen a kind of return of the unwillingness to acknowledge uh, the worth and value of humanity. You've actually seen from the Black community in the Black church a people who have been, again, at the margins and who have been largely denied that kind of recognition. You've actually seen them return that recognition and that favor despite not having, ha- having received it. And so I, I I think you, by looking at the church and its endurance and its faith and its hope amidst remarkable trauma uh, and against remarkable tragedy and setback I think display some of the best of what the Christian tradition has to offer um, and namely displaying uh, Christ ultimately and and who we know him to be in his person. So yeah I, ju- I just think that it, it, the the community becomes a it becomes a kind of text to read and to learn from. the community's history becomes a text in its own right to read and to learn from as evidences of what we see in the scriptures and know to be true about what God does in a man, in a community, amongst the people, um, when he is with them and when they are with him. Now, there's a lot of complexity involved to that. Again, there's a lot of diversity in that. But I just think that it is undeniable that we see what enduring faithfulness looks like and what what response to trauma and tragedy looks like when that response is not met with a vengeful spirit. But it is met with again a recognition of that which they themselves have not been have not been given. Because what do we see coming out of the Black Church tradition and out of Black culture and out of the Black community in response to trauma and tragedy? You see what you you, you see poets, you see artists, you see culture, you see faith, you see uh, right you know, all, all of these things that will bec- that will become a kind of markers of Black culture and Black life. Uh, we see and in many ways originate within the church that creativity that culture originate in many ways in the black church, but but you see the production of that out of deep tragedy and trauma, right? Which I think one of the biggest ironies. Look look at what the community and look at what the church produces in response to the marginalization, the oppression, et cetera. And so I just think that it just, yeah, it's just a beautiful picture of that. And I think that'll that ought that be recognized more.
2: Stephen, for those of us who are not as familiar with the history and the stories that you have just laid out, give us a couple titles and and you know for lay lay people not these not, not those of us people titles our, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but I mean give us you know give us a couple of uh, a couple of starting points for you know how we can familiarize ourselves with what you just laid out.
3: Okay, you know what I, I think. I think the best thing that one could do um, rather than running off a list of titles, because one, they would be very, well, they would be academic, but I think, I think people need to be called up to, to, to engage these kinds of resources. But what I would actually say is the new museum, this is after, after we open back up, of course, so you can't do it next weekend, but the new museum in Washington DC here, the national African American history museum, I, th- I think that would be worth the trip. I think for people who feel very, malnourished in their exposure to the history of, 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 black life in America would be well served by investing in that, that kind of uh, pilgrimage to, to be educated because it's all right there. And for the, and I know, I think all of you have, have went for those of you who have went, I think you can attest to that. I mean, oh, yeah. it is, yeah, it for takes sure. you from, yeah, it takes you from, slavery to, I mean, it, 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 gives it all to you and it's a lot to take in, but uh, I would actually, apart from engaging in works that, you know, we could put in the show notes, I would actually challenge you to, to do that once, once conditions are, um, are, are, not, um, prohibitive. I think, I think that that would be a worthy investment.
0: That's a good word. And it, and it is, and it's one of those museums that you can, you can literally spend all day there and still not, uh, not see everything, but it is, it's very moving. So that's a great word. Well, Stephen, Travis, Chelsea, thank you all so much uh, for, for being a part of this, of this difficult yet really important conversation. And uh, we're going to continue engaging in these conversations here at uh, the ERLC. And we appreciate you listening along every week to Capital Conversations if you haven't yet, we would encourage you to subscribe wherever you are listening to us, whether that's Apple Podcasts uh, or Spotify or, or somewhere else. Be sure to subscribe so that you get the latest Capital Conversations episode as soon as it publishes. Uh, and if you have a friend or family member uh, or or somebody else on your church staff, or, or maybe if you're not on a church staff, maybe somebody else. You know, maybe your pastor would benefit from hearing this conversation, and, and maybe this conversation could be a diving board into other conversations that you can have in your local community uh, with your fellow college students or or at your church. We would love that. That would be a great a great way for us to serve you uh, here at the ERLC. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks so much to our production team, and thanks also to you for joining us today. Resources from this conversation and all of our other ERLC podcasts are available at ERLC.com to equip you and your church.